Bible and turn to Genesis chapter 11. Genesis chapter 11. We'll read some from chapter 11 and the first part of chapter 12. If you don't have a Bible and need one, there should be a black hardbound Bible somewhere in the pew around you. And Genesis 11 is on page 8 of that Bible. Today we continue uh, our study going along the storyline of the Bible from garden to glory. In the beginning, God creates the heavens and the earth, and the climax of creation is when He creates mankind, male and female, in His image to represent Him on earth, and everything is good. But everything doesn't stay good as we saw last week. Mankind plunges headfirst into a sea of sin, and everything is broken and ruined. We left off last week on the brink of a worldwide flood, which was a sobering act of God's judgment against mankind. And yet at the same time, we also see the mercy of God because God saves Noah and his family. But as you keep reading and as you imagine just sitting here, the flood did not bring an end to sin. Sin still flourishes, and it actually reaches another pinnacle here in Genesis chapter 11, where God sends judgment again, a different kind of judgment, and God shows mercy again, calling one man through whom He will bless and save the world. So, let's begin in Genesis 11, verse 1, and uh, we'll skip some parts, but I'll tell you where we're going through it. Beginning Genesis chapter 11, verse 1, this is what the Spirit of God says. Now the whole earth had one language in the same words, and as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see that city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do now will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed from there over the face of all the earth, them there from uh, over the face of the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. Now, skip forward to verse 27 of chapter 11. Now, these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred in Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, 
and the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. Now Sarai was barren. She had no child. Terah took Abram his son, and Lot the son of Haran his grandson, and Sarai his daughter-in-law, his son, Abram's wife. And they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Let's pray together. Our God, as we come to your word, we pray that you will work by your Spirit, both in the one who speaks and all who hear, that your truth might be clear, that we might see you, the Ancient of Days, see you responding in mercy to us who deserve none. We pray, God, that you will strengthen our faith through the study of your Word. We pray for those who don't yet know you that they will see what an awesome and glorious God you are, and they will come to you through faith in Jesus. We pray in His name. Amen. Human history has many turning points, moments, decisions, discoveries, military victories, that change things, that bring significant change. You think of the fall of the Roman Empire, or you think of the invention of the printing press, or think of Columbus's journey to America, or the Industrial Revolution, or the Emancipation Proclamation, or two world wars, or the splitting of the atom, or the fall of the Berlin Wall, or the development of the Internet. All turning points where an entirely new course of human history begins. And there are lots more of them. And what we have in Genesis 11 and 12 is a turning point in human history. As you'll recall, in Genesis 3, God promises a Savior who will crush evil, crush the head of Satan, that one who will be the Lord Jesus Christ eventually. We saw that last week. But here in Genesis 11 and 12, we see actually God puts the plan to bring that Savior into motion. We see a very clear first step. And what we see as we think about these chapters is that despite the sin of mankind, God will bless the world with salvation. Despite the sin of mankind, God will bless the world with salvation. First, let's think about man's sin. That's what we have actually in chapter 11. We have an emblem of man's sin, as it were. We have the very heart of man's sin in the building of the Tower of Babel. In Genesis 
10, if you were to go back, uh, describes how the population grew after the flood and how mankind expanded. But as the population expanded, so did our heads, so did our pride. And that pride is seen here in the land of Shinar, which is part of modern-day Iraq. These people hatch a plan to build a monument to their greatness, a city, a tower, so they'll reach heaven, so they'll be remembered in all the generations to come, so people will know there is nothing that we cannot do. Verse 4, they say, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Now, this is not like an ordinary skyscraper kind of tower. Uh, it's not like the Eiffel Tower. This is what would come to be known as a ziggurat, which is a kind of pyramid-shaped tower. It's it's, it, it wouldn't be exactly like so, but if you put into your mind the war monument at the circle, this kind of pyramid shape that has a room at the top. I, uh, uh, my brother-in-law, uh, Susan's brother Clint, went down there while we were out of town and walked the 350 stairs, you know, all the way up to the top of it. And, you know, it's kind of like entering Willy Wonka's chocolate factory. He's, well, he didn't say that, but I did. Because as you go up, it gets narrower and narrower toward the top. And he said, there's just a little bit of space outside your shoulders. And plus, he got to the top of, you know, 35 flights of stairs, and he says he knows why nobody takes the stairs. And, uh, but he gets up there, and there's that pyramid shape. And at the top of this tower would actually be a room, and they would put in that room a bed and a table, because this is where God will live. In other words, in the building of this tower, these folks believe they have found a way to make it to God. We'll reach the heavens. We'll make him a nice bed. We'll put a little table so he can put his book on it. And we'll go up anytime we want, and we'll meet with God. Those stories of Noah, you know, of God speaking from the heavens, that's out of date. That's antiquated. I mean, that was fine for the past when we were primitive people, but we have really updated religion now. We are really advanced. We don't need God to come down to us. We can get up to Him just fine. We don't need God to speak to us to tell us what to do. We've got even better ideas. We've got this. Now, let me ask you, do you think that that kind of thinking ended in Babel? Do you think, oh, we don't deal with anything like that today? Yes, we do. It's as much in the modern Midwest as it was in the ancient Near East. We believe that we have advanced as a society beyond the morality of this ancient book. We don't need God's voice. We've gotten so much smarter. We've got our own voices. We can create our own morality. We can create what works for us. I mean, actually, we've developed a number of ways that we can be spiritual and get ourselves to God and connect with Him. 
And actually, we're quite advanced in technology as well. I mean, this Tower of Babel, that was fine for its day. But we've gotten to such a place in technology that no matter what it is that you're facing, we have a pill for it. You need to lose weight? Here's a pill. You need to stay awake so you can study for your finals. Here's a pill. Oh, you, you have an unexpected pregnancy. Here's a pill. Oh, you're having that issue that the Bible speaks to? Just, just close your Bible. Here's a pill. Not only that, we've got techniques, people. We've got techniques to deal with the guilt that you've been feeling. We've got techniques that come in the form of bottles of alcohol. We've got a technique that's so good you can carry it around with you all the time and you can escape into wonderland and forget all of the guilt that you're feeling through countless mindless hours of screens. If that's not your thing, we've got another technique. You can just exercise just so much and you can just get yourself moving. You can take a long run. You can go to the gym. If you don't want to go that far, just go to your freezer and get out the Ben and Jerry's because you can escape your guilt there. Just eat your way to the bottom and you'll forget whatever else it was, mostly because your stomach will be hurting, but you'll forget whatever it was. But if none of those work, we have come up with an idea that we like to call false guilt. And any guilt that you don't like, just put it into the false guilt category. That way you don't have to deal with it. We're quite advanced, you see. We've gotten way past our need for God or for the Bible or for prayer. And it's nothing but pride. It is the very heart of sin. It exalts man and it diminishes God. But the reality is, as you look at Genesis 11, God is not actually diminished. He may be in their eyes, but He is not diminished in reality. These people want to build what they believe is a great city, the greatest city with the tallest tower. And what does God need to do to see it? He needs to come down. Look at verse 5. And the Lord came down. And He comes down to see the city. Now, that's language we should remember if we've been reading Genesis because in chapter 1, when God sees, it's not merely an observation. Do you remember that? He doesn't see things to observe them. It's not like a parent who hears the giant thud downstairs, right, and something break, and what do they do? They go down to see what happened because they don't know. They may have a pretty good idea, but they don't know. God never goes downstairs because He doesn't know what happened. God goes down the stairs because He knows what happened, and He's going to evaluate it. You see, these people think they are quite great, that they are quite advanced, and God knows otherwise. God knows that they've actually regressed from the very purposes for which He created them. And so He goes down... And he does not applaud them as they would like. He condemns them. 
verses 8 and 9, the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. God confuses the language. God disperses the people. God will not allow them to continue in their pride. And at the very same time, that is both an act of judgment and an act of mercy. God restrains their ability to continue rebelling in that way against Him. Parents know all, all about this kind of act of mercy, don't we? No, you cannot go down to that house down the street. I know you want to play with them, but why would we do that? Because being in that house, that combination, that whatever's happened has been an environment in which that child has gotten in tremendous trouble. And we want to say, we can't stop them from sinning, but we can certainly say we're going to restrain the opportunity to sin. And this is what God does. You see, Babel is the height of human pride. But the spirit of Babel lives on today. And I say that and we think, oh yes, it's, uh, it's everywhere around us. It's everywhere out there, isn't it? Just say amen. Is it out there? Oh, it is, yes. But actually the bigger problem is that it's in here. It's not just out there. It's in here. You see, pride is something that very easily takes hold of us and doesn't easily let go and isn't easily detected. And so I want to just read some questions that maybe will help us begin to detect it in our own hearts. Do you struggle to learn from others? especially those who are less educated than you, especially those who have less experience than you, especially those who are younger than you? Do you resist the idea of submission, whether it's to your parents or to your boss or to church leaders or a wife to a husband? Are you quick to point out what's wrong in others rather than affirm what's right? Do you have a hunch that you're more spiritually mature than most of the people around you? Is confessing your sin to other people and seeking their forgiveness a great struggle for you? Do you resist asking for help, whether it's physically or financially or with some project at work or with your schoolwork? Are you easily hurt or offended if your accomplishments are not recognized or if someone criticizes you? Do you believe that questions like these are probably for someone else and not for you? The spirit of Babel is alive and well. And we shouldn't overlook it. In fact, C.S. Lewis said, pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. And that's what we see in Babel. This city, these people, this tower, it is emblematic of our sin against God. But God doesn't leave us that way. 
God will not simply punish sin. He will now provide a solution. He will work toward that Savior. He will get the wheels in motion. So that brings us to the second thing, which is God's solution. The end of chapter 11 focuses in on Terah and his sons, Abram and Nahor and Haran. They're living in Ur of the Chaldeans, and then they come to settle in Haran, and they're really an ordinary family. There is nothing special about them at the end of chapter 11. Nothing. They're just just at the end of this long line of genealogy that's given there. But then you get to chapter 12. Let's read verses 1 to 3 again. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. God's solution isn't merely to preserve humanity now. It is to bless humanity, to bless a world that only deserves His curse. And He's going to work that plan through calling one man. I may say Abram sometimes. I may say Abraham other times. I'm not trying to be technical here. We just all usually call him Abraham, so I'm going to. All right? So when it says Abram and I say Abraham, you can make your little notes on how many times I got it wrong. And then there are trash cans on the way out. And you can throw those markings in the trash can on the way out, all right? But I want you to see what happens here. What is it that God does as His solution? The first thing that you should take note of is that God takes initiative. God takes initiative. Look at, the begin- look at, cha- look at verse 1 of chapter 12. And the Lord said to Abram, It is so easy to read those words and miss how surprising that is. I mean, we've already seen that God is a speaking God. I heard the story of a pastor once. He was in East Asia, and he's in a cab in the back, and there's something hanging from the, uh, from the, the rearview mirror, and he says, so what is that? And, and uh, the man says, oh, that's my God. And so the pastor, the, the, this Christian pastor says, uh, does your God ever speak to you? And the man began to laugh. What a foolish idea. And so this Christian goes on to tell him about our God who speaks to us so that we can know Him. But God speaks. God has been speaking since Genesis 1. But the surprising thing is that God speaks to Abram. To Abraham. Abraham is not a righteous man. Abraham doesn't call on the Lord. Abraham isn't holding prayer vigils because he wants to find the solution to humanity's problem. Abraham is part of humanity's problem. He's been worshiping other gods with his family. I mean, his hometown is known for moon god worship. Abraham is not a light shining in the darkness. He is part of the darkness. He didn't go looking for God. God came looking for him. God takes the initiative. Do not miss that. This whole deal is God's idea, God's design, God's plan. 
And dear friend, the same thing is true of every single one of us who say that we are Christians, who is genuinely a Christian. None of us were looking for God. The Bible says none of us seek God. The Bible says we're like sheep going astray. I mean, we were going our own way, doing our own thing, but God came looking for us. And some of you know that really clearly, don't you? Because your life was going in the exact opposite direction of God. Nobody would look at the direction your life was going in and say, oh, they're going to make it to God going down that path. No. But then God took initiative, and He found you, and He showed you grace, and He saved you. And others of you say, well, yes, well, I grew up in a Christian home. I heard about Jesus my whole life. Yes, you did. You may have even gone along with it when you were a child because that makes things better in the house or because you felt like it was an honorable thing or because, you know, it got you some attention in youth group to, to feel like you were going along with things. But, but really, you didn't want to. And this is why, by the way, there are so, the statistics are so humongous about kids graduating high school and leaving the faith. But you were going along with it. You're not really that interested in it until that moment. Until that moment when the lights came on, you weren't even looking for the light switch. But the lights came on, and now the things you've heard all your life sound different. They sounded new. They sounded true. What happened? Well, God was actually the one that flipped the switch. God took initiative and found you. And then some of you are sitting here this morning. And you think you're quite safe from God finding you. But really, it could be that God's taking initiative even now with you. Maybe there's some issue going on in your life that has you sitting in a church and looking for answers. Maybe you have some sense of guilt that won't go away, like Lady Macbeth's stain that just cannot be washed out. Because maybe just everything that you've ever heard in church is starting to ring true and old ways of thinking are falling apart. Friend, that is the Lord taking initiative. Don't harden your heart. He's come to bless you. This is exactly what it's like for Abraham. He is worshiping other gods. He is living his best life. The one true God is nowhere on his radar. But God takes the initiative and finds him and calls him and blesses him. God takes initiative. And then we see that God makes promises. God makes promises. Five promises, really. Each one of these could, be, could stand on their own. You could do an entire overview of biblical theology based on just these five promises. However, we're not going to do that this morning. I just want to mention them briefly so that you know what they are. I started to do this this week. It started to rattle them off in my head, just reading it and saying it in my head. And then I look back at the last time I preached Genesis 12, and it's the exact same words I used then. So my thinking on this hasn't changed. The first promise is the promise of a place. The promise of a place. Genesis 12, verse 1, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. 
what we call the promised land isn't just a land of promise, like a land of good things. It's called the promised land because God promised it. God is going to take Abraham to a new land. Then there's the promise of a people. Verse 2, and I will make of you a great nation. Now, Abraham is 75 years old at this point, but God is going to take this one old man and make a new nation. He's going to overcome Abraham's age. God will overcome Sarah's infertility, and He'll give Abraham a child who will have children, who will have children, and eventually become a nation. A nation so great that by Exodus chapter 1, the Pharaoh who's in charge thinks we need to really put these people in their place. The third promise is the promise of prominence. And I will bless you, still verse 2, and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And when you read that back to back with Babel, isn't that something? They said, we want to make a name for ourselves. And God said, no. And he looks at Abram and said, I'm going to make your name great. And it is. And his name is great. As you, go through, as you go through the rest of the Old Testament and into the beginning of the New Testament, what is God known as? The God of Abraham. When the Pharisees are opposing Jesus, they, they begin to boast. Why? Because, hey, we're sons of Abraham. When the apostles want to describe what it means to live by faith, who is one of their chief examples? Abraham. His name is great. And then he promises him protection. Verse 3, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. You see, God's relationship with Abraham will be so intimate that he is going to take up Abraham's cause. He's like the big kid on the playground that protects the little kid. <laughs> the one who picks on you will deal with me. I've got your back. And God does this all through the Old Testament, doesn't He? He's fighting for His people in victory. He gives them victories. He gives them the land. He's always working. He protects His people. Even when they go into exile, He protects them from being extinguished. He's protecting, protecting, protecting. And then the fifth promise is the one of prosperity. In you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This one moment with this one man, this one call, will result in blessing that reaches all the way around the world. And it begins in the Old Testament, doesn't it? As the blessing goes to Rahab, the Canaanite, and Ruth, the Moabite, and the Queen of Sheba. All these different Gentiles, not Abraham's descendants, but knowing the blessing. In Isaiah 49, in fact, Israel is called a light to the nations. And while there's much more that could be said about these five promises, the main thing to say is that they all flower into full bloom in the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you remember what Jesus says before He goes to the cross to His disciples? I go to prepare a place for you, that where I am, the promised place, 
you will be also. And Jesus is the one who protects us, doesn't he? Jesus is the one who protects us from that which can fully and finally kill us from sin. He has died for our sin. He has extinguished its power on the cross. Jesus is the one who saves a people for Himself from every tongue, tribe, people, and nation, this worldwide blessing. There's the prosperity, and it's His name that is prominent. You know what I found very interesting this week? As you read the Bible, you read through the Old Testament, which I didn't do this last week. I did not read the entire Old Testament this last week. But do you know the last time you hear God labeled the God of Abraham is in Acts chapter 7 when Stephen is making his defense against his persecutors. When you begin to pick up the letters of the New Testament, these letters to the church, you don't read grace and peace from the God of Abraham. You now read grace and peace from God, our God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus' name has surpassed Abraham's name in prominence. Jesus is the one that all of these things point to. Now, all of that is glorious, but here's what I want you to know. Look who's making the promises. God makes promises. What is the solution to sin in the world? It is not that you and I need to make promises to God about how we'll be better about how we'll do better, about how we'll make the world a better place. God's solution for sin isn't based on our promises at all. They'd be fickle and we'd mess them up and we'd break them immediately, wouldn't we? We wouldn't even get out of this room without breaking them. No, God's solution for the world comes through His promises to us because we can do nothing to fix the problem. All we can do is make the promises, make, make things worse, not better. And so God's solution is that He makes the promises and He will fulfill them through the Lord Jesus Christ. This is so important as you are talking with people who are not Christians or if you are not a Christian. What we are calling them to is not to make promises to God but to take hold of the promises that God has made in Jesus Christ. To trust in Him. To believe what He has said. To believe that Jesus Christ died and rose again and His promise of forgiveness is true. And I hold on to it. The promise that He will be the only way that I stand right before God is true. And I hang on to it. Dear friend, if you don't know the Lord Jesus, this is what the Bible calls you to, to trust in Him, to take hold of Him by faith. God has taken the initiative, and He has sent the Lord Jesus to die, and He has sent His Spirit to convict your sin. Take hold of the promises that He makes and find the forgiveness He offers. God takes the initiative. God makes promises. And then interesting, as the story develops from here, God gives assurance. God gives assurance. Now, immediately, if you look at verse 4 of chapter 12, you'll see that Abraham goes, just, just like God said. So Abram went, as the Lord had told him, 
And Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. But it's not like at this point we can, find, we can just erase everything else and say, and they all lived happily ever after. Because they don't. Because uh, Abraham faces hardship. Abraham sins. Abraham struggles. He faces obstacles. Abraham's actually not sure how God will keep these promises that he has made to them. He believes that God will keep the promises, but he's not sure how God will keep the promises. And so all along the way, God keeps giving him assurance. Now, I want to tell you that after I proposed to Susan... And she said, yes. I had six months to keep her assured that we were still going to get married. Because she would, often, she would ask me. You can ask her why. I mean, I know why, because I know me. But then she says, are you sure, we, are you sure we're going to get married? Yes, dear, we're going to get married. Are you sure we're going to get married? Yes, we're going to get married. Are you sure we're going to get married? Yes, we're going to get married. That in the face of whatever it was that was coming up in her mind, and she just wondered, or is it, are we really going to go through with this? Are we really, you know, really going to cross the finish line? Did you really mean it when you asked that question? Are we really going to go through with this? Yes, yes, yes. And it's worked out for her. So, oh. But here along the way, Abram faces all these things, all these different obstacles and things that make him not unsure, are we actually going to cross the finish line here? I mean, how exactly are you going to do what you say you'll do? God assures Abraham first in the face of enemies. If you look at verse 6 of chapter 12, you'll see Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Morah. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Canaan was not simply sitting empty waiting for Abraham to show up. The Canaanites were like, we're not thinking, oh, is it time for Abraham to have the land because we can pack up and move. We can get out of here if you'd like. No. This is an obstacle. How, how is this? I, there are people already here. It's like walking up to a house and you say, ah, oh, this house will be yours one day. And then people come out, not because they were just in there, but because they live there. And, and, and you're like, how in the world am I going to be there? They're not going to just move out. I used to drive past the house all the time and think, well, I'm just waiting for that house to come on the market. That would be a great house for us to live in. Uh, 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 and, and it never did. <laughs> but here there are Canaanites in the land and God comes along in verse 7. Look what he says in verse 7. To your offspring I will give this land. Just those simple words. To your offspring I will give this land. And so Abraham bows and worships. God assures him in the face of enemies. God assures him in the face of childlessness. Flip forward to chapter 15. Time goes on, and Abraham still has no child, so he assumes that one of his servants must be the heir that God is talking about. This is how God is going to fulfill His promise. But God gives him assurance otherwise. 
Chapter 15, verse 1, After these things the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless. And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. He had no children. He assumed it must be coming this way, and God assures him, No, 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 no. In you. Not just in your household. In you. But then God doesn't just give him assurance in the face of his enemies, in the face of childlessness, but he also gives him assurance in the face of barrenness. So in chapter 16, uh, <clears throat> Sarah, Sarah is still barren. She tells Abram, go have a child with Hagar, my servant, so that you can have a child. Abraham does that. And now he has a child, and he assumes, oh, Ishmael must be the one that God is going to work through. This must be the child of promise. But God assures him again, chapter 17, beginning in verse 15. God said to Abraham, as for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become great nations. Kings of people shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man when he is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is ninety years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. God said, No. But Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. All along the way, as Abraham doesn't understand, as Abraham is foolish, as Abraham is sinful, as Abraham struggles, what does God keep doing? He keeps coming along, saying, we're going to get there. I'm going to do what I said I'd do. Just keep believing. And he does. He keeps believing. He still doesn't understand. We're going to get there. God does not make promises and then leave. He doesn't leave Abraham. He doesn't forsake Abraham. We didn't even look at the sin that Abraham commits, but God doesn't leave him then. God protects him even then. It's as if God taught him to sing the song that we sang this morning. You have been faithful through a thousand generations, slow to anger, swift to bless. Your hand has guided me through every situation. Your loving kindness hasn't failed me yet. And we can sing the same thing today, can't we? I mean, though we sin and suffer and struggle, the God who was with Abraham is with us. And actually, He's in us in the person of the Holy Spirit who He has given to us. And through the Spirit, God assures us over and over again as we sin, as we struggle, He keeps pointing us to the very place where we can look and be assured that God will keep His promises to a Roman cross and to an empty tomb. 
And he points there, and he says, look at Jesus. If I gave up my son for you, how will I not also with him give you all things? I will be faithful. I will be faithful. I will be faithful. I will be faithful. You'll face persecution, and I'll be faithful. You'll face opposition, and I'll be faithful. You'll face disease, and I'll be faithful. You'll face heartache, and I'll be faithful. You'll face betrayal, and I'll be faithful. You'll face family members who don't want anything to do with you anymore, and I will be faithful. You will face the door of death itself, and I will be faithful. That's what the cross and the empty tomb assure us of. God assures us, despite the sin of mankind, God will bless the world with salvation. This is the turning point. We're definitely out of the garden. Mankind has been expelled from the garden because of our great sin, but because of God's great mercy, the trail of glory has been lit up through the line of Abraham. God takes the initiative calling him. God makes the promises to bless a world that deserves curse, ultimately through Jesus. God gives assurance that he will be faithful and keep his promises for all who take hold of them. And many of us, if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you have taken hold of them. You are trusting Him as your Savior, as your Lord. He is the source of eternal blessing. And we rest in that truth that He will keep His promises to us. Many of us have done that, taken hold of Him by faith. But what about you? Could it be that though your life is more like Babel right now, marked by complete sin and pride and believing that you are beyond needing this God, is it possible that even this morning you know that God is taking the initiative with you, calling you to Himself? Will you take hold of His promises? Will you cling to the Lord Jesus Christ? Because if you will, Just like in the city of Babel, your sins may be many, but just like with Abraham, his mercy is more. That's good news. Let's pray together. Our Father, how we thank you that though our sins are many, your mercy is more. We thank you that against the backdrop of our sin and pride, and rebellion against you, you choose to show mercy and to bless all who will come by faith. We thank you that you took the initiative with us because we never would have taken the initiative with you. We are thankful that you make promises to us in the Lord Jesus Christ because we could never keep any promises we try to make to you. We thank you that you give us assurance along the way and that the grace that brought us safe thus far, that same grace will lead us home. We need such assurance because we're fickle people. We sin, we suffer, we struggle, we doubt, yet you are faithful. Help us to rest in that this morning. We thank you for this turning point of human history. 
and how it's brought about turning points in so many of our lives. Through faith in Jesus, in his name we pray, amen. The praise team is going to come and uh, we will sing the song referenced there just a few